0: You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church.
1: So back in uh, about May, June, when I knew that we were going to have an opening in our student pastor position, the first thing that I did is I began to network with uh, pastor friends um, really all over the state. Um, One of the privileges of being able to serve with the Board of Directors with the North Carolina Baptists is you get to meet a lot of people. Plus, I had a lot of friends in a lot of different places that I've got to know over the years that are in ministry. And First thing I did is I just started calling them up and saying, Hey, you guys know me. You know the church I'm leading. You kind of know what we're about. Um, If you've got somebody out there that you think might be a good fit for us in our student ministry, could you kind of help? kind of connect us up. Well, two friends, um, one is a a guy who who was working with the convention and another guy who's a pastor. They both contacted me like a week later and said, "Uh, hey, I think I've got somebody. I've got somebody that might be a a good fit. Not sure if he's looking or not, but here's the name. I said, okay, well, here's my email address. Just have him email me directly. So about a week later, I get an email from Paul Mansfield. But I never got anything from who the other guy was talking about. So I connected with Paul, and then I called my other buddy back up, and I said, hey, you, you said that you had somebody you thought would be a good fit. I never got any emails from him. Did you, did you follow through on that? He said, yeah, yeah, I did. Let me, uh, let me check on that. Let me, let me see what's going on. I said, well, by the way, what's his name? He said, well, his name's Paul Mansfield. <laughs> so both friends, without really knowing it, referred the same guy. And I say that to say this, that Not only did I sense that God was up to something there, but the more I've got to know Paul and his wife Sarah, uh, the more we've got to meet. And and trust me when I tell you, uh, he's been vetted. Uh, He's been asked about everything under the sun twice over. Uh, Our personnel team has done their work. And uh, the more I've got to know him and the more I've got to hear his heart, the more I am certain that that God is calling him here. And what I want you to do this morning is to uh, give a listen to uh, his testimony, because he wants to share with you some background, how God brought him into ministry and all of that good stuff. Paul is here this morning with his wife, Sarah. They have two children, Olivia and Sean. Olivia was over in our, ch- over in our children's ministry. Sean's not been feeling too good. He's 19 months old, so he's been kind of hanging out at the hotel with uh, part of their family. But I want you to make uh, Sean I'm uh, Sean. Let's make Paul very welcome this morning. So give him a Hyde Park welcome this morning as he comes to share.
0: Well, good morning, everybody. Um, yes, I am Paul Mansfield, and uh, it is a pleasure to be here with you uh, and be able to spend some time to get to know many of you, get to meet several of the youth and uh, their families, uh, and just also to uh, enjoy the community here uh, and get to, get to get to know the Lumberton area. Um, but yes, I'm here this morning uh, to share a little bit of uh, my, my testimony uh, and where God has, uh, has brought me from uh, to here today. Um, And and honestly, from the beginning, I I was born and and raised Southern Baptist. My grandfather was a Southern Baptist preacher. Uh, My mom was a a, a PK, a pastor's kid. Uh, And so as she was always there when the church was open, um, basically from the young age, we were as well. Uh, The age of six, I moved to Kings Mountain, and we got plugged into First Baptist Church, Kings Mountain there. Uh, And and, and that is where uh, our family really started to, to grow spiritually. Um, And honestly, it's before, right around the time I turned seven, um, that the the pastor there was preaching. Honestly, I couldn't tell you the the passage, uh, but I could tell you what I remember him talking about, and that was uh, to get the grace through Jesus Christ, uh, the sharing of his inheritance in heaven, uh, and, and just having that salvation. Um, And that led me to go home and talk to my parents, and and both my parents walked me through um, the gospel message and what it meant to give my life over to Christ, and I do believe that it was then and there that I prayed for my salvation. Uh, Now, being a little bit younger, um, you know, I definitely learned uh, more and more each year what that meant, um, but it wasn't really until I got plugged into the youth group when I was in middle school um, and got plugged in with my my youth pastor, uh, Pastor Jeff Johnson, that I really started to learn what it meant um, to put hands and feet to my faith. Um, and he is the one that really started to challenge me by seeing things in me, uh, to give me the opportunity to stand before the youth group, uh, and even, you know, pray, uh, read Bible passages, uh, and then as I was actually getting older, uh, to actually start helping teach the younger, younger youth, uh, when it came to small group time, uh, or breakouts, um, and then, honestly, when I started going to college, he would call me back to chaperone youth trips and different things, uh, so he kept me, uh, plugged in, and he kept me, uh active and actually sharing my faith uh, and what I'm meant to be a follower of Christ. So the youth ministry uh, was a tremendous um, work in my life and in my uh, salvation. Well, then I graduated. I went to Appalachian. Um, You know, and going away from home, you know, definitely, uh, you know, faith testing, uh, you know, to to stand firm for for what you believe and everything, and so I had a lot of that going on, Um, but thank thank the Lord I got plugged into uh, a good set of friends um, that were also believers. Um, and, and they um, worked at summer camps. Uh, and so they got me plugged into working for Christian summer camps. And also, it actually also through them that I met my wife, Sarah. Um, and so me and Sarah worked for three years uh, in Christian camps throughout the summer. Uh, and, you know, that's where parents would basically come and they would bring their kids, drop them off with you for all week. And you would just take them through uh, Bible studies. And you would spend uh, spend time with them doing different activities out in the woods. Um, or we would also travel. Uh, weekly to different churches around the state and put on Bible schools. Um, so that, that was, that was a, a very much a blessing from God to give me that kind of fun uh, position to do. Um, but then we uh, graduated college, right? And, and now, now it's real world time, okay? And now it's, now it's now it's us out in the world and w- the world and me and Sarah got married. Uh, and I graduated surprisingly with a finance and banking degree, I had no idea what I wanted to do, uh, even even through college. I honestly had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, I had those people that would speak into my life. You know, what they saw in me. Um, you know, my my grandmother uh, she, to this day will still still do that. I still do that. Her name is uh, I call her Mimi. Uh, she would tell me all the time. You know, I see just just like your papa. I see something for you in ministry. I don't know what it is. I can see you up there up there preaching. And every time I'm like, okay, okay Mimi, it's. Okay, you know, I kind of, I kind of would push against it a little bit. I'll, I'll be like, oh, you know, I I don't know, and I never I never knew truly what that would look like. Then then my mom, you know, being the math teacher that she is, hey, you're good at math and numbers. Why don't you try to find some banking? So I did, graduated with that, uh, and then so at that point, me and Sarah married, and honestly, nothing's nothing's hiring. You know, not nothing is is giving us to where we can support our support our future family. And so me and Sarah are praying, and we're saying, God, what, you know, what do you have for us? God, what, what do you desire for us to do? Uh, and it's through that, I love her uh, kind of high school friends, because we are kind of in her hometown area at that point. God's plugged into a local church. God's plugged into a small group. And it's through that kind of small group, they were encouraging us and encouraging me uh, in different things that they saw in us. Um, and it's honestly through, through that time that we kind of grew in our faith together uh, and praying together. And then out of the blue, my youth pastor, Pastor Jeff, um, he he called me. And I was like, "Hey, do you want to come with me to this national youth youth gathering? This national youth workers conference?" And I'm like, what's that? And he's like, well, it's where, you know, hundreds to thousands of youth pastors, youth leaders, they gather together once a year. Uh, and it's a massive conference. They, they learn how to uh, possibly uh, teach differently or different kind of tactics. Um, but the main point of what they're there for is they're there to share in what Christ has done in their youth ministry and through their students uh, and just to encourage each other. And I'm like, oh, that sounds awesome. Like that, that, that sounds fantastic. And, and so I, I go there for, for the entire weekend, um, and, and truthfully, uh, God just really put, like, a weight on my heart whenever I hear the testimonies of the different youth pastors and different youth leaders of how they saw God work through the young people in their ministry, about how when they, w- when they would see a, a student realize the love of Christ for them, that, that, that was everything. And so I go home uh, that weekend. I'm like, Sarah, I, I think God is calling us, or calling, you know, calling me in the ministry. Uh, what do you think? Uh, and, and and she tells me that she is actually supportive. Actually, uh, you know, she, she told me that she actually had had a, had a dream in college before we even even met uh, about uh, her future husband not knowing what he looks like, but he could, but uh, she could see them together and basically leading and teaching young people. I'm like, I'm like, all right. I'm like, God's telling me one thing, and God's telling her the same thing. I don't think God was send us mixed messages here. Uh, and so it's that point that we both agree that we're called into the ministry. Uh, and, and then I started to do the steps of, okay, what what should I do? <laughs> so I reached out to Jeff. I reached out to uh, to, to my pastor, Jeff. I, I reached out to our head pastor, Brother Chip, at that time as well, uh, and different people, and they're like, hey, you know, this is awesome. Why don't you, uh, you know, go someplace to kind of grow your understanding, to grow uh, in, in, in your teaching ability, uh, and so that's where me and Sarah got plugged into Southeastern Seminary, uh, and we were there for four years, and Uh, You know, while I was there, I did, uh, you know, Anybody who goes to Southeastern, uh, more often than not, they do their time at Chick-fil-A um, there in Wake Forest. Okay? So I, I had a good three years of working at Chick-fil-A, uh, you know, learning to say my pleasure. And I still, I still say my pleasure a lot of times. And it kind of annoys Sarah sometimes. Um, but, but, I, but I will. Um, but it really grew to be uh, humble and how, how to uh, interact with people. And honestly, it was a lot of fun having a bunch of seminary students in there and just talking theology as we're making chicken. Uh, so it, it, was, it was a great time. But then we started to uh, have a, have a family we, we started to have Olivia uh, at that point. we got plugged into um, a church there in the local area called Green Pines Baptist and I was uh, the youth intern there, uh, well one of the youth interns there was two of us and when I say youth interns, basically we, we ran the entire ministry and almost kind of dabbled in the kids' ministry a little bit there. Um, but that was a great time and in, in getting my, my my feet wet and truly teaching the gospel to middle school, high schoolers, uh, creating those kind of relationships, those one-on-one relationships, and seeing the importance of that. And then it was from, from there we got, we got put into where we are now at Trinity Baptist. Um, and, and just seeing Christ move and seeing him move through, through Sarah and I uh, and through the preaching of his word, that's why I truly feel called to youth ministry. It's that relationship aspect I mean, first, first, first you, have, you have Jesus, right? You have Jesus who is one of the true first youth pastors with, with his disciples uh, and trying try to teach them the gospel and, and have those one-on-one relationships and, and those tight group of people. So I'm trying to follow in his footsteps, and, and, and I love teaching the gospel message. Um, I love teaching to, to large to, to, to groups. But honestly, it's that trying to find that connection to trying to have that one-on-one, to trying to have those things where, where the students can come to Sarah and I and realize that, that they, they can speak to us, they can rely on us, and we're going to try and teach them the truth of Jesus Christ as best as we can in our ability and point them to the Bible. And it's at that moment when you see a student truly get the understanding of the gospel and how Christ died for them. And it's nothing, nothing that they can do or even deserve, but it's from the love of God that it's for them, and actually trying to give them opportunities to go out and be the hands and feet of Christ, and put their faith—you know, put 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 their money where their mouth is, right—and uh, and actually share their gospel presentation through their actions and through their words. Right, that will truly help them see that they are followers of Christ, and that's what we desire for them. And, and all throughout what, what I tell the students, all throughout you know, being raised in the Baptist church, uh, coming through all these things, um, being able to look back and see God at work, I tell them it's it's not always easy. Okay, it's not always easy. Life is not always You become a follower of Christ, that doesn't make it 100% perfect the rest of your life. There are ups and downs. There are challenges. There are, there are great, amazing, awesome times, but there are still struggles. There are still hardships. So I want to read to you uh, a passage that I try and live out. I mean, you, you've probably heard this passage before. You've probably heard the verse before. Um, people a lot of times uh, kind of like, 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 like to say it as almost like a mantra sometimes. But this passage here is the Apostle Paul. This is Philippians 4, verse 11. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? It's through those times of knowing that even throughout all the times of being led in the ministry, being able to look back and see God at work, there are still struggles. Right? You know, me and Sarah still you know, argue sometimes. We have bills that pop up. We have, we have, we have, we have hospital bills that pop up with, you know, with kids you know, and sickness and stuff. There's always going to be another bill that comes up. But there are times we can look back and we see how God brought us together as a family. We can look back and see how God has led us different places, where God has led us to where we are now, um, to honestly, to have opportunities like this, to help us to have um, new possibilities of growth, new relationships. I can look back and see that God is always working, and with his love and grace and mercy and through the love of his son, Jesus Christ, we can overcome all these things and find his blessing. And that's what I desire to do whenever I teach youth in the, in the youth ministry. I want them to find and realize that personal relationship with Jesus Christ so that they can overcome all things.
1: Turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. Last week we kind of started in this book, I'm going to be walking through it for the next few weeks. Obviously we won't be going verse by verse, we're going to hit kind of the high points, um, but uh, I, th- I think this is the first time that I've talked through this book, and uh, what I have found in it is just, as always with any set of passages, it's deep and it's wide and I'm not even going to come close to doing it justice. One of the most popular illustrations, or one of Paul's popular illustrations in the New Testament, of the relationship between Jesus and the church is that of marriage, of husband and wife. And Unless we think that that is just an imagery that is given to us in the New Testament, we find it also in the Old Testament. When we look in the Old Testament, we see that God makes a covenant With Abraham and his descendants. And he not only affirms that covenant with Abraham, but he affirms it many more times after that and even kind of expands their understanding of what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. And they get to Mount Sinai and God's going to give the law through Moses. And and that law was meant to show the people what it looks like to live different and separate from the rest of the world. So when we get to the prophets, both major and minor prophets, there's often this allusion to. God being the husband and Israel being the bride. And that's exactly where Jeremiah is going to go in chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, we're going to find out really the core essence of the message that God wants to speak to his people. Now, we're going to be unpacking that message for the next several weeks. We're going to be going deeper into different aspects. But today what I want to do is kind of give you a broad overview of the primary message that Jeremiah has been called to speak to the people of the southern kingdom. So let's pick it up in verse 1. And let's read through these first 13 verses or so. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt, and disaster became upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me? that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits, and a land of drought and deep darkness, and a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land. And made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And and with your children's children, I will contend. For cross the coast of Cyprus and sea or send to Qatar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters." And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Father, we come to you this morning with hearts that are grateful, grateful because you have been faithful and consistent with us our entire lives. Even before we knew you, even before you changed us, even before you gave us brand new life, you were faithful to us. You loved us. You extended grace to us. You you sent You sent people by our way. Maybe it was family. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a youth pastor. Maybe it was a vacation Bible school and the workers who served there who who told us about your love and your grace. So, Father, if we look closely, we will see messengers that you sent in our life, people who loved us enough to tell us the truth. And so, Father, we are grateful for that. But, Father, help us not forget the pit you drew us out of. Help us to never forget the grace and the mercy that we've experienced. Help us never to forget that if we've been born again, we are adopted by you. We are your sons and daughters. The world is pressing in on every side. Lord, you told us that the, the world is a dark place, but it's growing darker. So, Father, may your people, call by your name, be the lights in this world they've been called to be. And for those who do not know what that means... For those who've never been changed, Father, may today be that day. Father, we pray for all those that that are sick. Father, people all through our county struggling with COVID and all kinds of sickness, all kinds of difficulties in their family. and We pray, Father, for healing. We pray, Father, for your grace and mercy yet again. Father, we pray for one of our brothers in Christ, Brandon Meadows, Father, who's struggling with this virus, even in the hospital. And Father, I know the days have been hard. I know his family has really been concerned about him. And Father, we love him. And Father, you've used him in this county for many, many years. Father, we pray that you bring complete healing to his body. Pray, Father, that you would deliver him completely from all that he's experiencing even now. I pray that you give him a full breath of air this morning. I pray, Father, that his fever would go away. And Father, we pray all this for your glory and for your glory alone. And not only for Brandon, but for all those in the hospitals that are, this morning that are struggling to get a deep breath of air, and even for those that are at home. Father, we know you're in control. We do not live our lives in fear. Father, help us to walk faithfully with you each day, not worrying about tomorrow, for tomorrow has worries of its own. Not chained to our past because you've set us free. But, Father, living each day in the fullness of your glory, and the fullness of hope and peace as your people. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. Jeremiah is going to be given a message. And part of that message is going to be a picture of, of God the groom and Israel his bride. Now, if you remember last week, I told you that there were key moments all through the Old Testament, big historical moments. And one of those moments was when the kingdom of Israel separated into two kingdoms, a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. And that was all the result of Solomon and his son and all that went down there. But nonetheless, we have a divided kingdom. And in the southern kingdom, we have the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. And and this tribe, being part of the nation of Israel, and part of the covenant promises, God sees them as a bride. He sees them as as someone not only that he's separated from the rest of the world, but someone that he loves very, very much. And God sees that there is problems in the marriage. And God is going to call Jeremiah, a 17-year-old teenager, to step into this relationship and speak on behalf of God to a bride who has walked away from her groom. Now, you can imagine all that went through Jeremiah's mind as he learns that even while he was in the womb of his mother, God separated him to this work, that when God looked at his mother and looked in the womb of his mother, he didn't see a clump of cells. He didn't see a fetus. He saw a human being by the name of Jeremiah, and that Jeremiah would be set apart to a mission and a work that God had for him, a path that he would walk. And Imagine as a 17-year-old hearing all of this, and imagine being given a ministry that God is going to tell you multiple times, and we're going to see it in the weeks ahead, that ultimately his ministry is going to be a failure. I mean, nobody that God calls into ministry wants to be a failure as far as a human perspective, a human perspective being that no one in the nation is going to repent. Nobody's going to listen to his message. And in fact, over time, they're going to declare Jeremiah as public enemy number one. Imagine at 17... Being told you're going to give a ministry where you have to speak some hard things to a southern kingdom that doesn't want to hear what you say, and ultimately, from a human perspective, your ministry is going to be an absolute failure. Sounds something to be excited about, right? (laughs) Well, Jeremiah's been given that task. And Jeremiah is going to find out that when God says that these people are a stiff-necked people, which means they're stubborn, he's going to find out that that is absolutely, completely true. So what is... Jeremiah's message to Judah. It's almost as though Jeremiah has been called to be a marriage counselor. And he's got to step into a broken relationship. And make sure you understand this at the very beginning. The brokenness in the relationship is not on God's side. God has been faithful over and over. The problem lies with his bride, the Israelite nation. So what we're going to see here is a husband's love for an adulterous wife, but before we can get to that place where we see the hope, and trust me when I tell you, there is great hope in this prophet and what he has to say, but before we can get there, we've got to look at the problem, and Jeremiah has a message, and that message is going to be very clear as to what the problem is. So let's pick it up in verse 1. He says, the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, go and proclaim this message in the hearing of the southern kingdom of Jerusalem. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Guess what God is doing in these opening words that Jeremiah is supposed to speak to the people? God is reminiscing about the newlywed days between him and his people Israel. God looks back, and he looks back at a particular time in history, and he says, back there at that time, you were devoted to me. You loved me you were faithful to me. Now, the the time frame that that God is talking about here may surprise you. It's the time of the wilderness wanderings. Now, if you've you've read through the Bible in a year, or you've heard me speak out out of Exodus and Numbers, if you know anything about that particular time frame, you know that there were problems even then with the people of Israel. But it's amazing to me that God looks back at that particular time frame and He says to his bride, through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, "You were devoted to me, you had your attention on me, you loved me, you followed me, you were faithful to me." Now that doesn't mean that it, the, the relationship was perfect. Because remember, anytime humanity's involved, there's going to be problems, and there were. When they were wandering around in the wilderness, there was often these times where The people would look back to Egypt and go, man, I wish we were back there. Man, why why don't we just forget about this whole God thing, Jehovah God? Let's go back to Egypt because there we had melons and we had food and we had shelter. We had all that we need. Now, yes, there were times like that, but God looks back and says, yes, there were bumps in the road, but the reality is, is the people followed God into the wilderness. Their sandals didn't wear out. God provided them with food and water. God God was doing miracle after miracle. God separated this entire nation of people to himself. When they walked out of Egypt, when they they killed that Passover lamb, they separated themselves from the gods of Egypt, and they became a nation. And God loved that nation. And God said, you're my bride. But not only did the nation love God and keep their eyes on him, look at verse 3. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. And all who ate of it incurred guilt and disaster came upon them. What's he talking about? Well, in the Jewish law, when the, when the Israelite people would go out and harvest their grain, they were commanded in the law that, that there was a percentage of that grain, of the, of the very first and best of the harvest, that they would set that grain aside that it was holy unto the Lord. In other words... That particular grain could not be touched. It was special. It was was significant. And there was very clear designation in the law how that was to be handled. But what God is saying here, he's not talking about grain. He's talking about the nation of Israel itself is just like the first fruits of the harvest. In other words, he's saying to the nation of Israel, his bride, he's saying, you are special to me. You are set apart For my purposes, you have been set apart from the rest of the world, and therefore, you are just like the first fruits of the harvest. And there would be people all through their history, tribes, nations, that would rise up against Israel. And what any good husband would do, God stepped in and protected his bride. That's what he means here. He says, and all who ate of it incurred guilt. In other words, anyone who ate of that first grains that came out of the harvest, if you ate of that, you, you were facing destruction. God says that the nation of Israel, his first fruits, if anybody who laid a hand on his bride paid a price. You look anywhere you want to in Old Testament, you'll see entire tribes wiped out because they dared to raise a hand against his beautiful bride. That's what any good husband should do and would do. God says that they were in a love relationship where God loved them. He protected them. He provided for them. If you remember when Joshua leads the people into the promised land, the promised land is already inhabited by people. What did God do? God drove those people out. And he gave them the land. So God has provided a land. He's provided a city. He's provided walls. He's provided gates. He's provided a temple unlike anything the world had ever seen where God's presence would dwell. He's provided all of this because God was a good husband to his bride. And there was a period of time where the bride honored him. I think you know where I'm going next. Although when God looks back at that newlywed time, God reminisces about how it was, but it's not like that anymore. Hundreds of years later, and now God is going to step forward and he's going to say to Jeremiah to go to his people and say to this, to the southern kingdom, you are going to be divorced because you have not been faithful. Now, God is not going to forsake his covenant promises to his people, but his people need to understand that as his bride They are expected to live as his bride. So God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I've got a message for you. That message is to go to my bride and tell my bride that they are going to be divorced if they don't repent. As a matter of fact, let me show you this in Jeremiah chapter 3. Now, when when we read through the book of Jeremiah, it's it's not going to read like the book of Genesis, like a narrative, like a story, right? When you read the book of Jeremiah, it's a little bit disjointed. If you, if you compare it to reading like Isaiah, Isaiah kind of reads the same way. You read one chapter, like if you're reading through the Bible in a year, you, you get to Isaiah and you go like, what is going on here? And you think you're reading a story and then the very next chapter switches to a completely different subject. And the reason is, is the book of Isaiah and the book of Jeremiah is not put together like a narrative. It's put together like sermons and proclamations. So you can be in one topic, one one chapter, be in something else the second chapter. So in chapter 3, God goes a little bit deeper into the story about what it means to divorce. Look at verse 6 in chapter 3. Because the fact is, there's already been a divorce filed. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel. Now, here he's talking about the northern kingdom. Now, by this time, the northern kingdom had already been wiped out. The northern kingdom had already been judged by God by the Assyrian army. God says this. He says, did you see what she did? How she went up on every high hill and every, under every green tree and there played the whore. Wow, that's pretty strong language, isn't it? Or prostitute. God says, did you see what she did? The northern kingdom? Verse 7. And I thought, I thought after she had done all this, she would come back to me, but she didn't return. Her treacherous sister, Judah, the southern kingdom, saw it. She saw that, all, that she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away, look at this, with a decree of divorce. The northern kingdom, God had already divorced them. The southern kingdom saw it happen. And the southern kingdom is doing exactly the same things that caused God to divorce the northern kingdom. He says, Look at this, verse 9. Because she took whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committed an adultery with stone and tree. That means idols. That means that the northern kingdom. Was, was given itself completely over to the idols of the f- nations around them. The very nations that they had been called to be like to had joined them in worshiping false gods. That's what it means by tree and stone. He says here, Yet for all of, her, all of this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares Lord. In pretense. In pretense. What does that mean? It means that the southern kingdom... Because they had the temple, they were still going through all the rituals. The priesthood was still performing sacrifices. But the reality is is that the southern kingdom was no different than the northern kingdom, and they had turned their back on God. So the reality is, this marriage between God and his people is in big, big trouble, because the wife has stepped out on the marriage multiple times. God has been faithful. Israel has not. God has been providing Israel, the southern kingdom, has chased after whatever they find to be satisfactory in the moment. How does this happen? How, how, do, we, how do we get here? How, how does a nation of people who have seen the miracles of God and heard the stories passed down have a temple where the presence of God dwells? How in the world do we get to this place? Well, I want to show you some of the characteristics. As a matter of fact, I want to give you a pathway on how this southern kingdom ended up where they are. And what you're going to find is not only is that pathway part of their history and a part of how they got far away from God, but it could also be part of yours. The first thing I want you to see, the first step away from God, the first characteristics of this broken marriage is that they forgot God. Look at verse 4. Back in chapter 2, verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? So, so God poses a question. He says, how is it that your fathers who know what I've done for the nation of Israel, that know that I have... Blessed and worked and provided and loved and extended grace and patience and mercy. Your fathers knew that and they've passed that along to you. How is it that they have gone after worthlessness? You know what he's talking about? Worthlessness? Idols. How is it that the most blessed nation on earth has now abandoned their first love and is now cheating on their husband? Look at verse six. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who, who led us in the wilderness and land of deserts and pits and a land of drought and deep darkness and a land where that none passes through where no man dwells. God says, how is it that you can so quickly forget about me when I did all of this? I brought you through a desert where there was no food, no water. Your sandals didn't even wear out on your feet. I provided manna. I provided quail. I provided water from a rock. Before even any of that happened, I parted a Red Sea. Before that happened, I brought the most powerful nation on earth to its knees. I defeated every one of their false gods. Every one of those plagues that God performed through Moses was an assault on an Egyptian god. Every one of them. And he defeated them all. I made you a nation where you were just a bunch of people. Seventy people went into Egypt. More than two million people come out. And God leads those people through all kinds of wilderness wonders. And even when they reject God, even when they won't go into the land because of fear, God did not abandon them. Even when Moses comes off the mountain after being given the law, he comes down and he hears dancing and singing. In Exodus 33, he gets down there. What does he find? He finds the nation of Israel has fashioned a calf out of gold, and they're calling it their God. And even then, God did not destroy them. How is it that now you have become a prostitute? How is it now? I'll tell you how it is. They forgot. They forgot all of that. Now, that seems like, well, it's got to be more. No, it started right here. It started with this seed, and that seed was forgetfulness. They forgot what God did. They forgot what, what God had blessed them with. They forgot who they were. They forgot who God was. And they simply was doing life day in and day out with no connection to their husband. This is not hard really to put in context, is it? Because I could tell you over the many years of doing a lot of marital counseling where marriages are in trouble, often we find out that they've forgotten the love that they once shared. And oftentimes, maybe in that first or second meeting that I'll have with a couple where their marriage is in trouble, I'll, I'll take them back to the wedding day. I'll take them back to the courtship. Why do I do that? Because they have forgotten what brought them together to start with. Back then, They were saying, God brought us together. Back then, they were so much in love that all their friends were so sick of them talking about the person they fell in love with. All their friends were sick of hearing them talk about him or her because that's all they talked about. But because of work and bills and some of the things that Pastor Paul was talking about, some of those things, when life begins to kind of creep in, next thing you know, two people who were madly in love, who couldn't stay apart, who would talk on the... Back in my day, I know this is a little weird, talk on the phone for hours, (laughs) and it's texting or something else now, but now are just two people passing in the hallway. One's coming home from work, one's going to work. It's about food and meals and laundry and paying car insurance. Take that imagery now, and let's move back over to God in the Southern Kingdom. The Southern Kingdom had forgotten all about God. They had forgotten to the point to where they didn't even realize that the very land that they're standing in, and the very temple that they look at, and the very priesthood that's performing those rituals, every bit of that was a work of God. Look at what he says here. Look at verse 8. We find out that it's even worse than just the people forgetting God. Why did the people forget God? Look at verse 8. The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? In other words, the very priesthood, now get this, the very priesthood that is set apart to minister to the people and to minister on behalf of God, to be, to be that bridge between, between the people of Israel and God, that's what that priesthood was supposed to do. Get this, they weren't even concerned about God. They weren't even asking about where the Lord is. And folks, here is the, one of the scariest things that I'm going to tell you today is that you can go through the rituals of religion and yet have your heart cold and indifferent on God. Did you know that you can go to church? You can sing some songs. And from the outside, everything looks like it's okay. If you could drop into Israel, if you could drop into the temple during this time, you would see a flurry of activity, the sacrifices, all that was part of the priesthood. It was all going on. But their hearts were cold and indifferent so much to the fact that the priesthood didn't even ask, where is the Lord? Wow. I I would dare say to you this morning that there's 4,000 Southern Baptist churches in North Carolina, nearly 40,000 across the country. And I would dare say, say to you this morning, I would predict this morning that all across our country in churches just like this one, there are people who are sitting in pews and chairs and folding seats like you are, who are simply there out of rote ritual, not because they love God. And that should scare every single person. They didn't gather this morning because they love God. They didn't gather this morning because they want to grow deeper. They gather because it's what they do on Sunday. But boy, you let Monday morning come around. Or you let even Sunday evening come around. And we turn the religion switch off and we turn the world switch on and we completely forget about God. Let me just tell you, that there are people all over the place who name the name of Christ and maybe even perform a few rituals, but they don't even know who God is. Let me tell you why this nation got to this point. Obviously, look, look at this. Let me read this on. He says, The priests did not even say, Where is the Lord? They weren't even concerned about it. Those who handled the law didn't even know who God was. The shepherds transgressed against him and even the prophets, who were to be the mouthpiece of God, were now prophesying in the name of a false god named Baal. Talk about a mess. How did we get here? Well, I'll tell you how. When we were looking at chapter 1 last week, those first few verses, where he talks about a king named Josiah, I told you that it gives us a kind of like a historical setting as to where Jeremiah is and what it, where, the timeline in the Old Testament. Well, there was a king by the name of King Josiah. And Josiah, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 22, you don't have to turn back there, but there's a guy by the name of Hilkiah. And Hilkiah is in the temple one day and he finds the book of the law. Now, let me just say something here. He finds it, which means it was not prevalent, which means it was not being utilized, which means it was been set aside at some point. Hilkiah finds the the book of the law, and he's overwhelmed. He's blown away. He takes it to the king, the king of the southern kingdom, Josiah. Josiah is so blown away, you know what he does? He calls everybody together, and he sits down, and he reads the entire law. He reads all of God's word. Did you know that in that timeline, 700 years had passed since that had happened? What? The nation of Israel? That God gave the law to? And 700 years had passed where the book of the law was just set aside? That's why the bride has turned her back on her husband. This is why the bride is now looking for something other than the best that she could possibly have. If your exposure to God's word It's no more than what you hear me do on Sunday mornings. I want to be as clear as I can be with you. If you're a Christ follower, you put your faith in Jesus. If your exposure to God's word is nothing more than what you hear me rant and rave about for 35 to 40 minutes on Sunday morning, you will forget God. If your exposure, if your idea of, of following Jesus is only connected to 45 minutes to an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, if that's the extent of what it means to follow Jesus, you will forget him and you will take the next step. The next step is you will find satisfaction in something else. That's what happens next. So the first step is, and this marital problem is, is the wife, the bride, has forgotten the love of the marriage union. She's forgotten about it. And she's doing her own thing. But here's the thing. We don't live in a spiritual vacuum. When we, when we turn away from God, it's not as though we kind of hang out in this middle ground, you know, where it's just like this, this kind of gray area where, you know, we're just not following Jesus right now, so we're just going to kind of hang out over here. We're going to kind of hit pause. That's not how it works spiritually. The very moment you step away from Christ is the very moment you're stepping towards something that's going to take his place. The Bible calls it idols. Now, I don't think for a moment that probably anybody in this room has any kind of like a brass statue or a wooden totem pole in your house that you're burning incense to and worshiping some false god, but make no mistake about it, idolatry is alive and well. Listen to what he says, verse nine. He says, therefore, I contend with you That word means to bring a charge. So what God is doing and what he's saying to Jeremiah, is he's saying to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, go say these words and I have a case against them. He says, not only will I contend with you, but with your children's children, I will contend. I want you to hear me very clearly here as well. Your choice to forget God Monday through Saturday doesn't just affect you. It affects your kids, it affects your marriage, it affects your home. If you've declared yourself as a Christ follower, then we are to continue walking with Jesus, and that's something more than just 45 minutes or an hour and a half on Sunday morning. And the fact of the matter is, if you're pulling back from God, you're replacing him with something. Notice what he says. He says, for across the coasts, and Cyprus, and Kedara and examine, and see with care. See if anything like this has ever happened. Has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods at all? He says, but my people have changed their glory, or they have exchanged gods. What is God saying here? At the time of this writing, at the time Jeremiah was being told this message, God says, look at the other nations. Let's just take one. Let's take Egypt, for example. Egypt was completely given to idolatry. They had the sun god and the moon god and all these different gods that they worshiped. What, what God is pointing out here is, is that like the nation of Egypt, they've been consistent through their whole history up to that point that they've not exchanged their gods. They've been more faithful to their false gods than Israel has been to the one true God. Isn't that incredible? Those false gods that can do nothing, those false gods that can work no miracles or provide anything, he says they are broken, they are worthless, but yet Egypt has been more faithful to a God who's no God at all than you've been to me. Then he says this, he says, be appalled, O heavens, be shocked, be utterly desolate. God God would love that if a southern kingdom would come to a place where they're shocked by their own actions, but they're not and they won't. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. Number one, they have forsaken me. It's not as though just the people have broken God's commandments. They've certainly done that. First two commandments of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. What are they? Have no other gods before me, and you'll have no graven images. They've broken both. And which, by the way, the Ten Commandments is a unit. Once you break one, you've pretty much broken them all. And if you look at their, if you look at where they are, they are not honoring their parents. I mean, all of the commandments have been broken, but especially those first two. But it's not just that the commandments have been broken. It's that the people have turned their back on God and not only turned their back because there is no vacuum that we can live in, they have pursued other lovers. Why is that? Because they're seeking satisfaction in something else. And that's where forgetting God always will lead you. Think about it. In the marriage, your marriages. I know that some of you have suffered through an instance of adultery. I know, I know that many of you have, and I know that that is some of the hardest things that you've, that you've ever had to go through, but think about it. That spouse forgot about the beauty of the marriage relationship that they had. They forgot about the vows that they took. They forgot about how beautiful of what God had put together, and you know what happens next? Because they don't live in a vacuum, you know what happens? They begin to look out and look for greener pastures. I've had men sit in my office and say, Pastor, the grass is greener with her. And I go, no, it's not. It's a land of death. You're destroying everything that God has given you, and you don't even see it? Would you forget, when you forget God, the very next thing you're going to do is you're going to seek satisfaction in something that can never provide it. Whether that be our marriages, physical marriages here on earth, or whether that be our relationship to God, when we forget him, we go looking for something to fill the void. They have forsaken me. Look at this. The fountain of living waters. God says, I am the fountain of living waters. I give you, I've given you everything that you could ever possibly need. And yet, you're going to walk away? It's not just that. It's not just that they, they've forsaken me. Look at this. They've hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Man, what an powerful illustration. A cistern was a, a hole in the rock that they would dig out, and when it would rain, and there was very little rain, but when it did rain, they want to catch as much of that rainwater as they possibly can, because water is life in a desert place. So they would dig these these cisterns, and, and there'd be a lot of earthquakes over this area, a lot of shifting in land, and when a, when a cistern would crack, the water would leak through, it'd be useless. God says that not only have they forsaken me, but they've gone out to find satisfaction in something that is broken. You see, the whole idea of the prostitution, the whole idea of the adultery is the idea that they have traded the one true God for a God who's no God at all, a broken cistern. This reminds me This reminds me of, a, of an interaction that Jesus had. Turn over to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Matter of fact, Jesus uses some of the very same language in this interaction. Now, Jesus tells his disciples one day that he has a need, that he's got to go down to Samaria. And the disciples are like, what? Uh, Jesus, we're Jews. We don't go to Samaria. We go around Samaria. That's kind of implied. Because the southern kingdom Jews, the southern Jerusalem Jews, looked at the Samaritans as a mixed breed race. They were considered to be lower than dogs. They hated them with a passion. So if they had to travel anywhere in that direction, they would travel 17 miles around Samaria just to not have to go through it. If they went in there, they'd be defiled by their understanding of the law. Jesus looks at his disciples one day and he says, hey, guys, pack it up. We're going to Samaria. Yay. They weren't too happy about it. Well, as they get close to Samaria, Jesus sends the men away, and, and Jesus by himself goes to a, a well of water, almost like a cistern. And he's sitting there, and a woman approaches. And this woman approaches, and Jesus says to so her, look at verse 10. He says, uh, hey, if you, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying you give me a drink, Jesus asked her for a drink of water, you would have asked him and he would have given you, look at this, living water. Living water. What's living water? Well, she's a little confused about this. What do you mean living water? You mean you've got something better than this well that we've heard come from Jacob himself? I mean, in her mind, the religiosity of that moment, how how important that well was, how important lineage and tradition was. Jesus, you can't possibly, this, this strange guy sitting here, a way, you can't possibly be willing to give me something. I mean, I've really got all that I need. Really. Look at verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, and he's talking about the water in the cistern, will be thirsty again. You see, physical water, cisterns, can only provide so much. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, will never be thirsty again the water that i will give him will be in him will come in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life what did god say to jeremiah jeremiah my people my bride they've left me the fountain of living waters jesus says to a woman in samaria i have living water for you but there's something about this woman well there's some brokenness in her life, and Jesus knows it because he's God. He says to the woman, tell me about your husband. Well, she finds out that, that Jesus knows all about her life. Jesus said, yeah, the guy you're living with, he's not your husband. And all those other men you've been with, yeah, you, you've, you've been looking for love your whole life, and you've been looking in all the wrong places. You see, she had some cisterns that she was going back to trying to find something real in her life she was going to what she knew to go to to try to find some meaning for her life some love some acceptance and she went from man after man after man after man just like the southern kingdom was going from idol after idol after idol and never finding anything that would satisfy her soul because it was not living water he said you'll thirst again But the thirst that Jesus was talking about was not physical thirst. It was that spiritual desire in her heart to be made whole, to be loved, and to know what love is. And Jesus says, as long as you go To the sisters, the man-made sisters, as long as you have your trust in Jacob's well, you will never, ever be satisfied. God says to the southern kingdom through Jeremiah, as long as you run after these false gods, you will never, ever find any peace or any satisfaction. You will never find what your soul longs for. So here's the question, church. What cistern that is broken, what are you running to for hope? Maybe, maybe you've forgotten about God. And you know, you didn't get up one day, you didn't get up one day and say, okay, God, I'm done. Or maybe you did. Maybe in COVID you said that. But, but it wasn't a, a thing where you just got up one day and said, you know what, I'm walking away from all of this. It was a slow, slow fade. And, and the more you forgot about God, the more you began to accept another God. Let's go back to the moment, the very moment you begin to move away from walking with Jesus day in and day out. It's at that same moment you begin to walk towards something less than him. It's a broken cistern, folks. Maybe it's a bottle of alcohol. Maybe maybe it's another hit of heroin or meth. Maybe it's another relationship, another him or another her. Maybe it's another job or a job promotion. Maybe it's more money in your bank. Maybe more money in your 401k. On and on and on. And you keep going back to that broken well, trying to find a drink of water that's finally going to bring satisfaction in your zone. You find that this cistern is broken. So what do we do? We go find another cistern. And we find another one. And they're broken over and over and over again. And we keep looking for something that will satisfy our life and it never does. When are you going to stop going to the broken cisterns and run towards the water of living life, of eternal life. You know, the beautiful thing about this divorce decree that God is issuing, he's saying to the people through Jeremiah, there's an opportunity to be restored. There's an opportunity this morning to find living water. But are you willing to forsake the God you've already taken under your arm? Are you willing to walk away from that? say, Lord, I trust you. Maybe for the first time this morning, or maybe for the first time in a long time. You're willing to say, you know what? I forgot about you, Lord. And then when I forgot about you, I ran towards this. And when I ran towards this, well, it's just broke my life in two. God always has a pathway back. It's called grace. Father in heaven, your goodness and your grace is everlasting. Your mercies are fresh and new every morning. And Father, we've all me included, every one of us, all of us have ran towards broken cisterns. Every one of us have ran towards things that can never bring hope or peace. Father, as one of your sons, there have been times in my life where I thought I had it figured out. I thought I found something that could, could fill that void in my heart. But Lord, it was a broken cistern. And it all began with me forgetting you and leaving you out of my life. Father, well, I don't think I'm the only one. And Father, I think there's some here this morning that have forgotten you, and now they're finding satisfaction in something less than. So Father, deal with their heart this morning. Father, for that one, that has never put their faith in you. Today will be an awesome day for them to walk away from all the brokenness to be forgiven and set free once and for all. And to finally find living water that springs up into eternal life. Have your will in your way. We love you, Father. May we never forget you. And may we never run after things less than you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.